Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dial the gate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome, everyone, to episode 82 of Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed. Thank you for joining us on your Sunday. Or if you're time-shifting and watching later, thank you for joining us. Uh, We have composer, the original feature film, Stargate, David Arnold, joining us this episode. And I do appreciate uh, you tuning in. David is, is someone I have been a fan of as far back as, well, I saw Independence Day first, uh, and he just, the, 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 uh, the creativity of this man is, is boundless. So I have been wanting to have him on for a very long time and I'm very pleased that he accepted. Before we get started with the show, if you like Stargate and you really want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal. If you click the like button, it makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. Giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last minute guest changes. And this is key if you plan on watching live. These talent are working and things shift about all the time. And clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days on the GateWorld.net YouTube channel. As with most of our live streams, David and I are going to talk uh, first and then... Uh, while we're doing that, I invite you over at youtube.com slash dialthegate to submit your questions. But with this particular episode, we have a giveaway for those who have joined us live. My moderators are going to choose one question, which is going to get sent the, I believe it is a deluxe copy of the Stargate uh, feature film score composed by David Arnold to uh, one uh, listener viewer in the YouTube audience who's live right now, anywhere in the world, I'll send this copy anywhere. So there was some question about that over at GateWorld. This copy will, since this is a, this is a live global audience, you've taken the, taken the time to, to uh, log in from who knows where. So uh, submit your questions to the moderators and one of you will be owning the, uh, the, uh, uh, the CD before the end of today. Without further ado, I'm not going to make him wait any longer because he looks like he's falling asleep over there in England. I'm sorry, David. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. This Thank- is the first time I think I've spoken about Stargate since, since we did it. Wow. Well, I am I am so grateful to have you. And I want to let everyone know uh, you are on a, a satellite uh, uh, connection. So there's going to be a little bit of lag. But the important thing is we can hear you perfectly. And it, it's just it, it's phenomenal to have you, sir. Your score, that theme above anything else is so, so central to the heart and soul of this franchise. Over 350 episodes
insane. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, I mean, I love theme tunes, right? I mean, I, I, I love them. And I love them because if they're done properly and they're done well, the entire world of what you're about to see is presented to you. You know, you, you listen to it and somehow it, 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 it's like, it's like a giant shop window. You know, it's got all the things that you're kind of interested and intrigued by. And it somehow encapsulates everything uh, about what the show could be, should be, and essentially, actually, finally is. Um, and I always, whenever I can, I always start with a, with a theme, you know, because it's like the films that I've done, uh, the TV shows that I've done, They've all got big themes, you know, you can play them and you know what they are. Uh, and I, I, I love doing that, but also I think it's really important to identify it, you know, um, and the fact that it's, I mean, there are lots of different themes and sub-themes in, in Stargate, but the fact that the central big one, the one that belongs to the movie, uh, has succeeded in the TV show as well. Mm. And I know it's been sort of changed about a little bit and that's fine because it's a different medium and we're telling a slightly different story. But um, uh, yeah, what was really interesting was that um, they asked me, I think someone asked me to do, what was the Stargate show that came out after? Was it SG1? Atlantis? Was, was it Atlantis? Atlantis? Yes, it was the spinoff. It was, At- it was Atlantis. Uh, I got a call about... Um, the music for Atlantis. And I said, um, I'd love to, um, you know, do a theme theme for it. They called you. Right. Something new. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, I seem to remember this is a lot. This is a while back. Okay. Um, or did I ask about it? it was anyway, something happened along the lines was that I would have to kind of demo for it, you know, with everyone else. And I thought, I'm not sure if I really want to do that uh, with, Starga- with Stargate. So I sort of withdrew at that point. Um, but, um, but the actual SG-1 show, obviously, was, was, was hugely successful. Uh, and it's, a, a, you know, it's, it's joyous to, be, to still have your thumbprint on it a little bit. You know? I mean, I know the guys that did the show, the music, did such a brilliant job. And they kind of captured the spirit of the film music certainly the score you know the little inclinations and the harmonic things and the the approach felt like it had its presence you know uh in in the score as well so that's always nice when stylistically you feel like this is strong enough to continue because a lot of times when you do a tv show they go let's take it somewhere else um but it does seem to have kind of inextricably linked itself to it which as a composer is kind of like your greatest dream that you do something which becomes the music for something which you love it's i i am a huge music connoisseur but i don't have the library of terminology where i can say you know i oh lead motif this and you know that such and such yeah no yeah but when in, in watching uh what joel goldsmith did for the the series it was so crystal clear the reverence that existed for the work that you created in the movie. 
because I mean the the villain Ra in the feature film was was transformed into the Goa Uld for the TV series, and every once in a while, this not uh, set, setting the the principal Stargate theme aside, we would hear just little reminders in the in the flow of the soundtrack. You know of who these villains were all, throughout throughout the show. Whenever the Goa'uld were used, there was there was such a reverence paid towards the work that you had done in establishing those initial building blocks in the feature film. What was, for all intents and purposes, you know, uh, um, a a popcorn uh, edge of your seat uh, thrill ride adventure for a feature film transformed into a legacy that's lasted seventeen seasons on television, and God knows what else next. Yeah, and it's something that you have zero control over. Mm. I mean, what was really interesting about Stargate from the outset was that no one knew what it was. Like, no one knew what it was going to be. And I think expectations for it were actually quite low. You know, uh, it was an unknown uh, quantity. Um, It was a medium budget. It wasn't a huge budget. Um, You know, Roland made the most of it. Uh, and there was plenty of other brilliantly creative people adding to the um, the kind of DNA of the look and the feel of the of the of the project. Um, and it went through a few changes. You know, there were some different editors came on. They tried some different cuts. They shot different bits and pieces. But I was on it for a long time, and I think I was on it for a long time because I was naive. It was like my first sort of major feature film, and I just thought I had to be there, and every time they made a change, I would have to rewrite the score, you know. So I was writing some scenes 12, 13, 14 times. Oh, my God. Uh, which, is ri- which is ridiculous because I didn't know that, well, why don't I just wait till you finish that bit, and then I'll do that bit. But I didn't know. So I was writing reams and reams and reams of music. Uh, uh, to fit the latest cut, you know, just that's naivety, you know, it's like that's inexperience. Um, but, um, so, so no one really knew what it was going to be, and it was only when it started, you know, doing well and chiming, I think, with you know, with the sci fi uh aficionados, <laughs> you know, people who appreciated um, the kind of thing that it was and the honesty that was involved in it, you know, I mean. I think if there's one thing you can say for Stargate is that it doesn't pretend to be anything other than what it is. You know, it's uh, it has no pretensions to, to to really anything other than being what it is. Uh, and I love the honesty of it, you know, and Roland was always very excited. And I think you can tell, you know, Dean uh, Devlin and, and Roland were, um, you know, um, uh, it, very, very into the idea right from the early days, and and their enthusiasm is 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 infectious. Mm. Uh, and for me, being able to being offered the opportunity to do something in a film like that, I also I thought I would have to wait, you know, twenty years before I got a crack at something of that scale. Because in a way, sci-fi is a genre which allows you to do anything. You know, you can do it all because because your responsibility to truth and reality is different because what we're looking at isn't truth and it's not reality, you know, but it has its own truth and its own story. And you've got to be honest with it. You know, you've got to engage with it in, in a, in an honest way. Uh, And I, for that reason was devoted to the, to try and be honest with it, you know, and, 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 um, and feel 
in a way musically what Roland was doing visually. Um, and the fact that you had all these images, you know, it's like there's a, you know, pyramids and 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 you know the the the, the travel through the Stargate and the you know Ra be you know, just the idea for a start, you know, what if Roland's big things are what ifs? Mm -hmm. What if we found something? What if we found something at the foot of a pyramid, which was like a gateway to somewhere else? That was his initial kind of pitch, uh, and it went from there and when you're reading it and all these things are happening you start off on earth and then you go then you're in egypt in 1928 was it 1928 1918 yeah. started 1928. off 1928 yeah 1928 uh right. i always remember because that 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 experience um and then you go to a time that you know no one has any experience of at all uh, uh and then we're back in the modern day and then the discovery of the stargate and the unlocking of the stargate and the character stuff um uh and then and then we're through the stargate and then we're there and the guy now what you have all these amazing huge chapters of development and and you know visual stunning visual things and musically, this is like, you can do anything for that. And I remember when I got asked to do it, they flew me over to meet with Roland uh, and Dean at Mario, and Mario Casar and Joel Michaels uh, at uh, Carolco on Sunset. And I had no idea what I was meant to do. I mean, at this point, all I'd done was a low-budget British film, which I'd done in my bedroom. So all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of this enormous Hollywood film with enormous Hollywood producers, you know, and movie stars in it. Not that young Americans didn't have movie stars and they had Harvey Cartel, and, you know, so um, there were some people, but, you know, we were in a caravan in London doing that. You know, this one, they built the, uh, they built the entire interior of, of the, uh, of the pyramid um, in the Spruce Goose, in the Spruce yes. Goose building. And it was enormous. And I'm, I'm, I'm turning up and going like, well, this must be normal. <laughs> this must be normal all this stuff all this stuff and uh because i've never done it before and um i was just thinking this is a gift you know this is a gift for music and i said to roland Dean in the room we were talking about it and i think they basically wanted to get an idea about what they what i thought of it and i said well look musically i said the only thing i can really say which is which is understandable and in very simplistic terms is that it's like Lawrence of Arabia meets star Wars musically. That's what I would say. Yes. I would attempt. That's yes, you know, absolutely. Uh, there is a kind of exoticism to it. Uh, there is a sense of adventure. There is a sense of otherworldliness. There's a sense of, uh, of daring do. There is a sense of, of regret. Uh, there is uh, an, honest simple love story there is action um but the whole thing is like thematically driven and so you're always anchored in a very musical world uh, and it went from there really they sent me home and then two weeks later i got i got asked to do it wow how long you know what let's park this for a minute i want to go back further okay what made you fall in what what scores what film scores what 
what um, compositions made you fall in love with this art form that made you say, you know what, I want to do this for the rest of my life, if God willing, I'm able? When I was uh, seven or eight years old, I was at the cinema, I think for the first time, I can't remember, but I saw uh, You Only Live Twice, uh, Disney's Jungle Book, and Oliver, the musical, the Lionel Bart musical. Now, each of those films, completely different. Each of those films, absolutely and totally identifiable by the music alone. Each of those films, visually stunning, character design, voicing, the spirit of it, you know, the emotional core, the sense of loss, the sense of adventure in You Only Live Twice, you know, the, the heroic story of James Bond, you know, the tragedy of Baloo dying in the fight with Shere Khan, but he's not dead. You know, the, 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 uh, the Bill Sykes, you know, trying to beat Nancy to death and being hung and these kids being, you know, effectively, uh, you know, socially abused. In Traumatized, yeah. You know, really, really, I mean, big things. And um, all that stuff properly went in. It properly went in. Uh, and it was in those days when you left the cinema, you could buy the soundtrack album from News the to foyer me. of the cinema. Wow. And it was vinyl. It was vinyl. And you would get a program as well. So the studio would make <laughs> a very lovely program and you could buy, it was displayed on the, uh, as you went out of the cinema, uh, the vinyl album, soundtrack album and a booklet and you'd buy them. And so we bought them. We bought You Only Live Twice. We bought The Jungle Book and we bought Oliver. I've still got them. I've still got the program for The Jungle Book. Um, and that went on the record player a lot uh and you replay the thing in your mind i know it's a cliche but you know i do it with my kids you know i put on film music and i say what do you think's happening here and everyone gets excited you know i was teaching my daughter how to how to ride a bike yeah first time without stabilizers and she didn't want to do it she was scared so uh i i queued up um the flying music from et you know, uh, and w- with Aww. my phone, and I ran al- and I ran alongside her, playing it at full power, and all of a sudden, off she went because she'd seen the film. Uh, you know, it's like it has a real effect on people. It's extraordinary, Correct. and so I w- it had an effect on me, and I wanted to be a part of the thing that made the noise that made me feel like that. It's as simple as that. And when I got into like the band, school band, school orchestra, you're making a noise, you're shifting the air. You're in a room with, you know, like 50, 60 other people in a band with an orchestra, with an audience. And the baton comes down and you start the piece and it goes bang. And it fills you with everything that music does. And then it projects it outwards uh, and you get something back from it. And it really is like it is a bit like flying. And I wanted to be a part of the thing that made me feel like that. Wow. I mean, I think everyone wants to be a rock star at some point, you know, but for a couple of years. Yeah, of course you do. Right. But, you know, I learned very early on. I learned very early on that I would never get to say thank you, Wembley, good night, uh, and became a bit more realistic about what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. 
Well, lucky for all of us, you know, you you followed through on on what you knew you were supposed to do. So, I what was it that made them seek you out for this film? I'm I'm looking at some of these shorts that you did, Young Americans Play Dead, The Follower. Um, yeah, you wouldn't have seen any of them. They were student movies. Yeah, you know, they didn't get they weren't broadcast. Right, they were just done in a college. I mean, you put them on a credit because it looks like you've done more, you know. I mean, I did them. Right. You know, I mean, I learned my, I learned how to do the job by doing student movies, but they weren't broadcast. Um, so they wouldn't have seen them. Um, so the Young Americans was the only one. Got it. The connection was that the Young Americans had a, quite a lot of producers involved. You know, the financing came from different places. And part of the financing came from Canal Plus. Uh, in France and the uh, Mark I think I can't remember his second name um, we didn't see him much but he was involved okay. now he was the one who was setting up with um, Carolco in Hollywood to make a Hollywood filmmaking arm of Canal Plus um, he took the Young Americans when we finished it uh, and asked Mario Casar if he'd look at it Mario was interested in seeing it because he was interested in new talent. God bless him. Uh, and so Danny and I, the director, Danny Cannon, um, got on a plane with a copy of the Americans in our suitcase. And we flew to Los Angeles and we hired a car and we drove to Mario Casar's house. And we roll up to the, um, to the entrance and there's security guards and there's Dobermans and you're in the Hollywood Hills and it's like you, you know, it is like you're in the movies, especially if you've, I've never been there before, you know? So it was like, okay. Uh, and you go in the front entrance and there are artifacts. There is like Charlie Chaplin's cane. Uh, you know, there might've been the first Bible. I don't know, but it was like full of all that sort of stuff you know, stuff that's impossible to buy. Um, all of Jerry Goldsmith's batons that he'd used uh, for the movies that he'd uh, wow. done with, um, I think the Rambo ones and the First Blood, uh, all of those, I think, in a little crisscross shape, set in a case on the wall. Um, yeah, the Chaplin stuff. And he took the movie off us, and of course he's got a cinema at his home. So he goes off to see it. He puts us in a room to wait because we're not going to watch it with him. Uh, and in this room, there are um, pinball machines all the way around the room on the, based on the films that he's done and the cinema gross of what they took. So wow. you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And he comes out and he's really likes it. He really liked it. I think he especially liked Danny as a director. You know, that's, I think that's why the judge dread thing came about. Mm. Uh, uh, so we just said a quick word with Mario. He, we said goodbye. I flew home. Um, then, uh, Mark had spoken to Roland and Dean because Canal Plus were producing Stargate with Carolco. I think it was their first big co-production. Uh, and I'd got on all right with Mark and he liked the music and he played them a piece of music from that score called Christian's Requiem which uh, you can look it up if you want. 
uh, it's pretty grand. It's big. I mean, it was a small film, but it was a it was a moment in the film where I could kind of be quite you know cinematic. It was a it was a funeral sequence, and it was supposed to be quite terse and tearing and hugely dramatic. So I go completely for it, you know, in this queue. And it's got choir in it and it's big and it's a big melody and it's moving, hopefully. Uh, and he played, he played his Roland and he liked it. And he said, well, let's talk to David. So they sent me the script over and then flew me over to meet with them. That's how it came about. Wow. I mean, I was attempting, I mean, I didn't have any money. Um, I was, I was, um, like applying for, I was doing work like digging up holes in roads and working in warehouses while I was doing student films. Young Americans had a small budget. Of, of course, we spend all that on the players. So there's nothing left at the end of it for me. So I'm going out and getting part-time work in order to find out what I'm doing next. And it turned out the thing that I'm doing next um, was Stargate. What, uh, what? crazy leap you know and it just shows that's not supposed to happen is it I mean, not. That's not supposed to happen you you like missed that. you missed the toiling I was and obscurity in the phase well i was i was in the office the producer's office and on his desk were stacks of cds of showreels of everyone that i'd ever heard of in film music james horner james newton howard you know the agents obviously going like we know you're looking for a composer for Stargate and they're there, you know, like they're in that room. Uh, and I had this one cue and this one film, um, but I got in and I spoke to them and I think, I think my love for it was equal to theirs. Uh, and my take on it was something that I thought they liked. And obviously I was a lot cheaper than the others. <laughs> To be brutally honest, <laughs> it's uh, that that did come up. Well, I, I mean, for that feature, and justifiably so. Yeah, you know. I mean, but for that Why theme alone, be, you, you couldn't know? you couldn't possibly have gotten the mileage out of it that uh, that uh, it, th- that that main theme. Um, how did you arrive at that? Because you know, in hindsight, having you mentioned Lawrence of Olivier. You know that that does or uh, Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, Arabia. not Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia and Star Wars. That really kind of I can see where the DNA for that original theme yeah. really comes into play. <laughs> it's because I was I was missing in sci-fi. I think since the since the sort of mid eighties where the electronic thing started happening quite a lot more. And you had moments like, you know, Jerry's score uh, being replaced by Tangerine Dream uh, in the Ridley Scott movie, you know, the Tom Cruise film, um, Legend, you know. Uh, And I'd heard both and I thought, why are they replacing that? You know, that's amazing. Uh, and, um, uh, And there was a lot of electronic stuff going on. And I was missing the... uh not the grandiosity, but the language of orchestral sci-fi recording, because, you know, I just loved the feel of all those people playing. And I think when you're dealing with things that are of another world and of science, 
the humanity that uh, an orchestral performance brings is essential for me, you know, for, for the, I'm not saying you can't do it without it, but for me at the time, I was thinking, God, I wish, I wish I could hear a great big balls out orchestral sci-fi score again with a big theme, like you do on the sci-fi's greatest hits, you know, albums, you know, like the way that John Williams effortlessly did in the seventies, you know, everything was, memorable everything was a classic almost immediately and i love the lyricism of that uh and the humanity of it um so i knew i wanted to do that kind of thing mm. um and so but that's secondary that's kind of how you do it but what is the it that you do you know it's very easy to put the cart before the horse and say i'm going to do a score that sounds like this I'm I'm thinking like, well, this is all very well, but what is it that we're going to be playing? You know, what is it, you know, what's the music going to be? The music that we're going to play in this style, what is it going to be? And um, I'd read the script. Uh, I was looking at a lot of Egyptian music percussion-wise, and there's a guy called Hossam Ramsey who played with Led Zeppelin and um, Jimmy Page, uh, uh, and Robert Plant as Page and Plant as well. Uh, and he lived in uh, England and he was a sort of brilliant percussionist. Uh, and he had an ensemble who would tour. Um, and I thought, well, I'll go and see him uh, and have a look at the instruments that they use because obviously the, you know, the Egyptian aspect of it, you know, it was the same thing we did with language, you know, how would yes. it have developed? You know, if if we literally went down and took everyone from this place and they never had any more earthly influence, how possibly could they have, you know, uh, developed? And I always felt like I know the language did. And we spent a lot of time actually on the on the um, one of the first things I had to do, actually, when they were on the set was when they were pulling the Stargate up at the base of the pyramid and you had all these slaves effectively pulling at the rope and the thing comes up like that and it's amazing um roland the night before asked me if i would um write a work song for these people to sing while they were doing the work in terms of like authenticity you know can we have something there which would add to the the general, you know, melee of being in Egypt in 1928 and what they would be doing as a sort of heave-ho kind of thing. You know? Correct. So I wasn't sure what to do. I thought, well, we'll have, to, we'll, have to, so we'll have to have some words. You know, they're going to have to be seeing something. So I, I, the guy who was the uh, Egyptian language expert from, I think, one of the big universities in, in California, um, in LA, uh, was on doing the translation for the cast you know so he'd get the words he would then develop a a language which was you know genuinely could have developed you probably know all this stuff uh some of um, it not all and so I said, <laughs> Let's, yeah it's 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 very interesting um because subsequent subsequently after he spent all this time and trouble doing it and he got the actors to say the lines phonetically they change a line in the you know when they dub it and they go like we could do with him saying quick get out now uh rather than who's that 
than you know the guy saying this language but you know the subtitle is completely different so i felt a bit sorry for him at a couple of spots but we sat down and we thought like well let's do a what's sounding like a kind of new egyptian work song so i did this thing and i get out on the set at the next morning and it's in yuma in arizona and it's like a heat that i've never experienced before uh we had um uh, uh, uh like belts with big um like two liter bottles of water in holsters you know you were kind of like uh, uh sort of clean living cowboys right you had these two liter bottles and you had to drink you drink them all day and you'd never go to the bathroom once yep. you know i mean it was extraordinarily hot yep uh and and, and they were digging up they were yeah they were digging up this thing and it was all like underground cables and there was a big winch, you know, out of shot with a wire on it. that was going to be painted out and all this stuff and, the, you know, the ropes around it. And so Roland gives me a bullhorn and I stand up in front of all the cast that are there and I start talking to them in English. And they go, this, the first AD goes, they're Spanish. They don't speak English. <laughs> oh, my God. I go, okay. So, so now, right, so you've got this guy from England trying to teach Spanish-speaking extras a, a fake Egyptian language. <laughs> and, of course, you know, you've got five minutes to do this because they're going to shoot the thing. And it was quite complex, this song. And I thought, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to teach these people this thing and for it to be, you know, they're never going to remember it. And they're never going to be able to, like, act and try and remember and sing this song. No, this is and something so I they thought, really you know would what? have had I'm to just... have rehearsed. You know, and so I thought, like, do you know what? I've, you know, six months ago, I was on a building site doing this kind of thing for real, uh, and we didn't sing a song. Uh, you know, so the most of the, the most of the thing we did was go heave and then call people bastards for not doing it enough. Um, so I thought, let's just have them go in heave, and that was much more authentic. <laughs> and I think that's what ended up being in the movie. But that was a morning where I thought, like this is about the most ridiculous situations I've ever been in my entire life. That would have There's been all these people looking at me going like, I don't know what he's saying. Well, I, you know, and, and raising the Stargate from the ground is one of the, the key moments in that entire film, because it provides the, uh, the, the clarity of how enormous this discovery is. And it would have been interesting had they been, you know, had you had to cut back and forth between, them singing and then you composing and putting yeah. things around it. So. Yeah. Yeah. But also it's like, it was like a moment of absolute wonder. And I know like right. Roland was very keen on it being like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Not like, Oh my God, what is it? It's a bit of the same with Godzilla as well. You know, it was like when he was looking at, when you see Godzilla, it's not like, Oh my God, that's terrifying. It was like, Oh my God, that's amazing. That was what he wanted. That was Matthew's, you know, kind of, uh, uh, that was the steer for Matthew. It's amazing. It's not terrifying. It's amazing. So the Stargate thing was like, oh, my God, what's this? Now, that's quite a big moment musically as an elevating thing. You know, it's a big thing. And I wanted it to really go, whoa, what's that? Uh, and but later when, you know, the other key moment is that when they dial into it and when Daniel touches it for the first time, and we hear the second part of that, where it's like, it's double wonder. You know, I thought like, well, 
it was wondrous when we saw it coming out of the ground, but this is more than that. I can't really get bigger than what I did earlier. So let's make it internal. Let's make it Daniel's. Oh my God, what's this? Which was and a moment that, that they came change. up with on set. It's not in the it's not in the script. They just right. go through the gate. Yeah. And I was on the set when they, I was I was on the set for that bit when they and of course what it is is just like a big black room, this big thing, uh, like a stargate. Uh, and a and a walkway up to it and behind the stargate there's a, a, a light and someone's doing that in front of it and poor James Spader standing in front of it basically looking at a load of X you know looking at like craft service table and a light in front of it and he's going oh my god this is amazing uh, and then he just walks into it you know and grabs a red vine and off he goes and does it again um, <laughs> the magic the magic of filmmaking, you know, and then I saw it and it was like, wow, that's, you know, that's been stolen so many times, that idea, you know, like the look of it and the feel of it, the, the water, you know, they did the thing with the spinning water. So it was lovely being around it so much as well. Um, but that was like a big moment. I mean, for me, the key, the big musical moments were yeah, opening title theme, uh, the, um, uh, the seeing the Stargate for the first time, opening of it and going through for the first time seeing Ra for the first time mm. and then the big climactic battle stuff with um at the end when it becomes when they're winning you know right uh and uh there's a lot of stuff in between which i really liked as well the master like, you, you have to that's I mean, really that's, short that's a really that, short sequence it's only like a minute long that's true but, but it's become really popular. Yeah, it's like, like you say, you don't, you got no idea why. Um, but I was like with the messages. I was there. Um, these poor horses. You know, <laughs> I know they had those these poor animals. Incredibly huge things that they strapped on them, uh, and they had fans inside the uh, costumes mm-hmm. to keep them. Um, but it was like, and I'm thinking like, this is, this is just another day, isn't it? I mean, we were next to the <laughs> Queen Mary. Jay Davidson, that's a whole other story. Amazing. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, you know, Kurt was lovely. James was lovely. I made a lot of friends on that film and it was, um, you know, it was, it was such a wonderful experience, but really, really, really hard work. <laughs> I mean, unbelievably hard work. Uh, but there you go. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it, right? That's certainly true. Um, a big uh, component of this film is obviously the villain, and when we had Dean Devlin yeah. on earlier this year, I I or I guess earlier in this season last last year, I didn't realize that Ra was completely that he was never supposed to be Ra until the end until the um, post production where they were like, okay, the performance we need we need to. In- we need to take this up a notch. Let's give him a flange and, and let's make his eyes glow. Let's make him raw rather than he was. He, he, well, he wasn't an alien until like 10 minutes before the film. came. <laughs> right. You know, so, a big part portion of, of his theme is that choir. I mean, t- tell us about bringing that it together. Is, but I think, I think, I think, I think there's two things that work with that, with raw. One is the, portentousness of that chant you know because it kind of harks back to um 
you know, sort of pre-science, which is, you know, a lot of the time, uh, you know, at the time when Ra was around, uh, although there was science around, Egyptians were certainly like at the forefront of a lot of it. Um, you know, for most people, they were still, you know, wondered if if there was a, a thunderstorm where the god was annoyed with them. Mm. Um, so there is that, um, uh, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the sort of organised religion, choral thing uh, of human beings, in a way, giving you a warning. That's what I wanted it to feel like. Mm. You know, it's like he's coming and you'd better be on your best behaviour. You know, in fact, you'd be best to get out of the way or whatever it is, he's coming, right? So you had that, which is the the grand aspect of it. And when you look at the entrance, you know, I mean, it's so theatrical. Uh, it's so, it is so grand uh, that you can't ignore the scale and the size of it. But for me, the real heart of it, the truth of it, was that horrible, mewling, greasy violin thing which just made you kind of, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it was like something so sneaky and awful. Yeah, it's horrible. That was the real danger. You know, the rest of it is showmanship, but it's like when he gets close to you, you realise, well, he's not a physical threat in terms of his size. He's not like a giant monster. You know, sometimes you get these things now and it's like, you know, got um, massive horns or, you know, big eyes and then cgi kind of creature you know it's a very slight young man uh but he can do all this stuff and it's what he represents and it's what he represents that's terrifying and what he represents is psychological really more than anything and when they get to the movie you know and they're moving towards the end and they realize that he has to be a bit more than that i suppose maybe because of the genre maybe they felt that the character as itself wasn't landing in a way that was a big enough villain, maybe. Uh, then, you know, then his eyes glowed and he does. I mean, he was doing these horrible things as well Correct. before. He had, um, but he was never revealed. He was yeah. never revealed. He was like imbibed with a power. Uh, and it's like the way that I felt about it was that like young Ra, you know, spent his whole life being told what to do probably in, the, in his duty, you know, by elders you know, by the people who would be striding alongside him and behind him. Um, and for the first time now, he's got power. And um, he, he's thinking of damaging people because he can, you know. Uh, and or at least with this ship horribly, and with this planet, these are his domain, and he's going to take full advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, uh, it, it's dictatorship. You know, it's it's North Korea in space. <laughs> yeah, the, the the choices that you made in a, in a couple of these uh, sections, particularly with with the violin, like you were saying, with those streaks, um, one of the more like I guess like how do I want to put it um, uh, on the edge of your seat, like biting nails moment is in the labyrinth under the pyramid. You know, when they're being hunted, the, the men are being hunted by the what would later become, you know, the, the mm. Jaffa, not really Jaffa, but the uh, the soldiers. And you're, you're keeping it. Yeah. You're instead of like going overblown and, you, you know, you're playing with the percussion and you're just you're you're 
you're winding up the audience, which is one of, I think probably one of my favorite scenes out of the movie because we're all just starting to freak yeah. out. Like as any moment, all these guys are going down and it's just one after the other. I mean, it was still pretty big, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't shy. Um, That's true. But I'm also aware, I'm also aware that this score and this film is operating at quite a high volume, even when it's quiet, <laughs> you know, true. it's like, <laughs> To, this, uh, to the and, scale and, of everything else, I mean, then. Yeah, uh, but I suppose relatively it was subdued. Uh, <laughs> but I also knew what was coming up. That's so true. you can't, when you've got something which is a little more internal and tense, you can't be going like balls out because otherwise where do you go when you've got these other monstrous, enormous things start happening. When you have 6,000 people running down a hill, oh my God. then you've got to have somewhere to go, you yeah, know? So, um, so you have to, have to say, save some of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair. The, uh, the, the success of the film surprised you. Did it blow you away? I know Dean was blown. Um, away. I think everyone was pleasantly surprised. Uh, I really liked it. And I really like what I did for it. And for me, that's the only success that I can hope for because that's the only thing I've got any control over. The only thing I can control is, is am I doing something that I like with people that I like? Right. And have I managed to do the job that I wanted to do? And I think the answer to all those was yes. So I went home, I was exhausted, uh, and, but, but happy with what we did. Um, Dean had the disadvantage of not knowing what he was going to hear. You know, I'd played him. This was a day, but you know, this was a time before you had samples and everything, you know, it was quite early days. Uh, so I mocked up a few things for Dean to hear, like the main theme, uh, the, the, the raw March, the, um, the scene with Kurt Russell, uh, in his bedroom mm. at the start of the movie before he gets visited with a picture of his son, you know, those things I think are important because if we don't get those bits right, mm -hmm. you can be jumping up and down and making loads of noise as much as you like. But if the things that matter to the cast, you know, right. to the character, you don't represent them, then, you know, you're lost and you're, you're basically ignoring a big part of why he does the things that he does. Uh, so, you, you know, so those, I think I played him like those three things and that was about it. Roland, I don't think heard much at all. Uh, and wow, I expected them to be right to the, by your side. We, we, this is surprising to hear. Yeah, well, you know what? There's a lot going on in post-production. Okay. Not only is the effect, but there's also the involvement, the relatively late involvement of MGM in the distribution part of it. And then, then we're getting into more test screening for MGM because before, I think they had, a, I can't remember if they had a couple with Carolco. So, so the film was kind of made without a distributor and we were in post-production without a distributor. And then halfway through post-production, MGM came on board. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, they got their input. So that's when things started to, let's look at this again. We're going to look at this again. We think we might change this. That might go that way. So from that point on, everyone was at full pelt. You know, mm. we were, we were uh, on the running machine going at full speed so we didn't fall over flat on our faces. Um, <laughs> and I think they just didn't think about the music as much you know uh or maybe they just trusted me i've got no okay. idea okay but 
um, in those days, you wouldn't have that much play to you. You know, you just wouldn't. Um, you know, you've all seen the the the, 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 the little film clip of, of, of uh, John Williams playing the TV music to Steven Spielberg. Right. That probably would have been it until they get on the stage to record it. You know, you're like, well, I've heard the themes. I like the themes. I like what it's doing. That's where we were with Roland and Dean. But, you know, there's a lot of music in that film and they hadn't heard really any of it. Um, so we got to the studio and um, got the orchestra in and I was absolutely petrified, absolutely petrified. Um, it was the biggest thing I'd ever done, obviously. Uh, How many pieces were in the orchestra? Expectation. Uh, I think it was 80, 85, not huge, huge, but big. You know. Crapping my pants, man. Uh, and f- oh, man. A, yeah, well, I think I, think I might have done. Uh, but I was, I was there realizing that I had no idea what it was really going to sound like either, you know, because now you can do an awful lot with samples to sort of realize where you're going to get to. Correct. So, do you know what I said, you know, Roland and Dean, they were just sitting there looking at each other going like, if this isn't any good, we're sort of stuck because there's no time to do it again. Yeah. There's no money to do it again. Uh, and you know, it would have been a three month job to do it again properly, you know, because it just would have been. Uh, and, um, so I thought like, I'm just going to start with the opening title. So they don't have to worry about picture. They don't have to worry about dialogue. They can sit there and think, is this our movie? Uh, and they played it. And obviously the difference between hearing an orchestra perform it and having a kind of poor, synthesize a mock-up of it all of a sudden it's like okay and when that finished i think dean might have been crying i don't know but he was relieved you know (laughs) everyone was relieved and from that point on it was just about getting best performances so but up to that point it was one of the most terrifying moments of my entire life i think so but bloody hell it sounded amazing in that room it sounded (laughs) so amazing in that room and, you know, I told them to go into the room and listen to the orchestra playing it. It's so huge. And I thought, you're never going to hear it like this ever again. When you do the dub and there's explosions and everything. But, you know, this opening yeah. title sequence, it's there was diminished. hardly any sound on it. It was just music, just music. And it was like, bang, there's your movie. And they go, thanks very much. And we're off. We were off to the races at that point. Wow. So the opening titles that we hear in the theatre that was it you made no alterations that that was the one uh i don't think we did any alterations we did another oh. i think we did another take we did another take or two you know because you always do of course. i mean usually when it's the first thing you do the engineer's going like i haven't got a level on the percussion i haven't got the level on the strings you know can you play it again you know so you play it play it once the engineer gets busy on changing mic positions uh go out have a discussion with nick the conductor about can we have the woodwind a bit louder here? The violins at that point, you know, let them play more to the bridge. All the notes that you make, you pass that information out and then you do it again. And that was it. I mean, basically we recorded it and you move on. The whole wow. thing was probably 10 minutes, 12 minutes. I remember doing a, uh, I did a film in college. It's one of the things I'm most proud of for that I've ever done. And I remember the rock in my stomach that was there 
when I uh, uh, had written the the documents, the manuscript and or the the script, and then the actors started bringing it to life, and I and I brought it home into the editing bay, and I assembled it, and the rock turned into this cloud. Yeah. It was so freeing. It was like it, everything that had come before. I was vindicated. I had made the right choices, and it had to have been the very a very similar feeling. Uh, I mean, I I would sympathise with anyone doing something for the first time, creative, or even it happens every time. You know, um, uh, you know, whenever I do anything creative, I'm absolutely terrified um, of whether or not anyone's going to like it, mm. because there's a possibility that they won't. In which case, you're either going to get fired or you get another <laughs> run at it. Right. Well, you might get a chance to to look at it again, you know. But but it's a it's a horrible it's a horrible experience, and that, that's why I don't like doing it very much. That's I fair. love being asked to do it, and I love finishing it. But the doing of it, especially that first thing, because you've got that horrible moment where you play the music and someone's sitting there in your studio, and there is this horrible silence. And in your mind, you're thinking the worst. How is he going to break this terrible news yeah. to me that this is an absolute yeah. pile of shit and he hates it? And he's thinking, how do I tell this guy that this is an absolute pile of shit and I hate it? <laughs> or, or, or am I going to be nice or not nice? Some people aren't. You know, some people say that's a massive pile of shit and I hate it, which is fine. You know, it's like I don't mind, but get to it quickly. Don't leave the gap, you know, because right. you're kind of like teetering on the edge going, just let me know, will you? And um, Just go for the uh, jugular. Uh, you know, Don't do slices, you know. <laughs> I always say to a director, I always say to a director, I said, look, you know, however we speak and appear. Right. Um, you know, to get to the point where I'm going to play a piece of music about your film, I've gone through a lot to get there, you yeah. know, uh, and it's not. You know, it, it is sort of personal. You know, it's like it, it comes from a very honest place and an open place. I said, first thing you tell me, say you love it. You can then spend the next 10 minutes explaining why it's shit and you want me to change it all. But just say it, you love it. Because then I will not die, yeah. you know. Then I will just go, oh, but at least he likes it. He wants to change things. Yeah, like, you know, there's stuff there. Yeah, he wants to change stuff, but he did like it. That's all you need, you know. You need to know you're kind of on the right track. Even if you don't like it, say you do, and then say all the bits that you want me to change, which might be all of it. But at least I'll have not had that silence, you know, that deathly silence, like the sound of, of televised golf when they hit the ball for the first time. <laughs> right. And they follow this thing up in the air, and there's commentary... And you can't see anything. There's a camera looking at sky. And then you can't see it when it lands. That air sound, that nothingness, that void, that's what we don't like. Yeah, that's true. It's always fascinated me how this process works. Because you have, at the end of the day, it's what we take away from the film. And what we take away from the film are our emotions if if it's if it's a piece of art that well you take us. a lot of prop i do well i mean yes <laughs> in general 
the writer is approaching <laughs> the project. <laughs> the writer is approaching the project with hoping to convey X, Y, and Z emotion. The director mm-hmm. is approaching it with hoping to convey X, Y, and Z. Then the composer comes in and you are doing your interpretation of what you are doing what it means for you, but you are doing an interpretation of what yeah. it is that they want. Yeah. And they cannot yeah. tell you, yeah. I want to convey exactly this in exactly this manner. You are, it is your job to feel them out. And when it works, it is amazing, you know, and that's because it's not it's not always going to be perfect. You know, sometimes it just has to be close enough. No, you can't get inside their heads. You can't do that. This is, and this also, is all feeling. And, and also and also there's a very, very important uh, aspect of this to consider, which is I'm not scoring the movie that they've got in their head. I'm scoring the movie that they've made. Correct. So that's also their, a big difference. their hopes and their hopes and dreams and wishes of what it was has to now be instilled in what it is. And what I do is I write to the film that I've been shown and I'm responding Correct. to that. You yes. have to deal with the, with the, can we skew it a little bit more like this because that's how I envisioned it and we're not quite there. That's all fine. But I can't be scoring a film that's in someone's head and not on the screen. And that's the, one of the first things that I'll say is, is, is that, that your film doesn't do what you're asking me to do. And I don't want to, I don't want to look like we're trying to, you know, sledgehammer ideas into things that right. aren't there. Cause if the score starts telling you how to feel, an audience is going to go like, no, 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 we're going to, you know, they it. see through it, see through it immediately. It's like, hold on. That's like someone pushing you. You know, or like grabbing your hand and going, look, look over there. You know, there are ways of doing these things. But uh, most of the time, I have to say, in my experience, uh, there's been a really wonderful correlation between the director's vision and the film that he's made. You know, and I've been lucky in that regard. But there have been moments where that hasn't happened. And everyone's just got to be realistic about it. That's one of the things that I hate about that. I mean, I love the horror genre, but... I mean, so often in these in these uh, these films, the the music is telling you how you are supposed to feel, rather than rather, and it's like you said, it's pushing you, it's shoving you into these corners where it's it's trying to scare you to death, you know, with these loud bursts yeah. of sound instead of reaching your hand out and saying, "Come with me, let's go this way." Let me yeah. let me see. Let's, well, let's see bit, what I have to show you. It's a bit you. like. It's a bit like scenes in films where children are in danger. It's a, it's a very easy way to get yeah. people r- riled up in a way, you know. Uh, and to have the kind of silent, 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 bang, is a great way of getting people shocked, you know. I don't find it scary. I don't find it any more scary than, than someone dropping a dustbin outside my back door. You know, you just think, what Correct. the fuck is that? You know, Correct. it's not scary necessarily, <laughs> It's just a visceral thing that happens. But anyway, we're off topic. No, but but, and then this all leads to only the next film, which is just happens to be the one one of the biggest, you know, blockbusters ever in the history of cinema. (laughs) 
Independence Day. Yeah, I thought, well, this is normal. <laughs> right. <laughs> it must be, mustn't it? Jeez, this man. must be normal. People just come from nowhere and you get two films like that in a row. Uh, yeah, it turned out it wasn't. No, absolutely. That's an, that's an interesting lesson to learn. How's that? I mean, why tell tell us that journey. I've never, I've never been there. You know, I'd, I'd never been to Hollywood. I didn't know what was, you know, I mean, I knew about films and everything, but uh, I didn't know, you know, then, then you realize that there are people who work as composers' assistants, who do all sorts of uh, things. You know, I thought it would be, if I'm lucky, I'd get an advert, you know, I'd get a mm. commercial. I might get a commercial or two. That might lead to some, you know, low-budget TV work. That might lead to some better-quality TV work. That might lead to some very low-budget British movie. That might lead to a slightly higher-budget movie. In 15 years, I might get a film like Stargate. That's what I was expecting. That's what logically happens, you know. And I realise it's a story that it, it happened in the way that it happened, and it doesn't happen very often, you know. When you speak to other people, it doesn't. But, you know... I think when things are right, they're right. And right. if you're lucky, you know, they say, well, is it luck? Yeah. Luck will get you in the door, but it won't keep you in the room. That's certainly true. Absolutely. Yeah. Dean had said how it was just nothing had come together so fast or, and it moved so as, as smoothly as Independence Day had. And it resulted in, I mean, it was Jurassic Park and Independence Day are, are really the reasons that I became film fans you know and that's largely attributed to you there is a moment in that movie and i have to be a fanboy for a moment here um mommy's sleeping when after mm. after the first lady dies and that that piece of yeah. music that 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 yeah. just fades yeah. out and then july 4th you know i'm getting goosebumps yeah. just thinking about it it is so yeah. good man yeah well i'm just looking at you know i mean i'm just looking at the truth of what's in front of me yeah. you know and i mean part of that in a way it's a bit like comedy scoring emotional moments isn't it you've got to know when to stop yeah you've got to know where the beats are you know you don't go where the rhythm of that is and you lead to that point and you let you let bill's performance happen you know and you let that devastating sentence be delivered and then you're taking everyone's hands and we're walking away from it. You know, yeah. we have to turn our back on it knowing that it's happened and we have to lead them somewhere else. Cause that's what we have to do. Right. And it's only a 15 second thing, you know, 10 second thing, but it's all important. Yeah, absolutely. If you get those bits wrong, then the big bits won't, you know, won't be convincing anyone. I was so, uh, to, to jump ahead. I was so surprised uh, when I'm watching Good Omens and I see that you did the music, this I I, I remember the the trailers for it coming out. I was like, well, this looks interesting. You know, I've heard about the book and everything else. It's like, and then yeah. this this absolute like something out of absolute insanity. The music the music could have been. It sounds like it could have been written by someone in an in, in asylum. Just someone just completely Looney Tunes. That had to have mm-hmm. been just, you know. A crazy experience. It was, it was, it was, I think I'm not, I mean, this is no offense to anyone else, but I think it probably was the most fun I've ever had actual yeah. fun. And that was because Neil 
Gaiman and Doug McKinnon, who directed every episode, basically said, you can sort of do anything you want. The weirder, the better, the more out there, the better, <laughs> the most, the, the oddest, the oddest things you can think of. And it was, I mean, that thing is chock a block full of very strange things. Mm-hmm. Just look at the title sequence, uh, you know, it's crazy. Uh, well, that's the most coherent, <laughs> um, you know, I got, I got so many other sort of weird instruments and we played, you know, some of it was like folk music. Some of it was like heavy metal. Some of it was like church right. music. Some of it was, some of it was uh, sort of cinematic. Some of it was electronic, uh, but it all had to feel like it belonged in this world. Uh, and the world that they created was Which so was coming out there yeah. that everything, everything, yeah. everything worked. It was so strong that everything worked for it. No matter how weird you went, like the scene, the scene where he comes, he goes into the phone, you know, he goes down the, he hides in the phone system. Uh, and I did that with like, kind of like old, like a line of old cassettes with different bits of, you know, tones on it and triggered them all at different times. And the whole thing sounds like a sign of wind up weird old 50s toy, you know, really weird. And I think about it now, I don't even know why I did it. But it sits there and it's like, this is nothing like the music that was 10 minutes before. And it's nothing, you know, it's the only thing, it sounds like it sounds, and I'd never go back to it, you know, and, and you don't mind. It's like, because, because at its heart, the theme is strong enough right. to have our tentpole moments and you always return to the central core of it and everything else that's hanging off that can be insane. As long as we go like, still here mm-hmm. absolutely i'm very glad you liked it i lo- love doing it it's so radical and anyone who's out there you know if you want if you want something fun to watch and interesting with chock full of british humor uh good omens is is a great uh mini series for you it was not the direction that i was expecting but yeah it's it's great stuff david um any other uh of your of your scores that you really recommend that we go out and listen to that you're particularly oh god uh and go i i i i i i think i liked stepford wives because it was a survival thing in a way it was one of those things that was a bit of a redo at the last minute as well uh and ended up being i think quite exciting and i really liked the spirit of it um meaningfulness i think um a lesser known film the amazing grace about slavery uh about the british politician who was key in ending the british interest in the slave trade uh i loved that because it was about something serious i don't often get asked to do things that are serious or have real you know actual meaning rather than uh metaphorical meaning no it was about something real that happened that still has implications now uh i I really like that i liked uh i like paul you know the uh uh, the the movie with simon pegg (laughs) yeah yeah i really like that i really like that uh and hot fuzz i thought i really liked as well crazy i tend to like the ones that are funny you know because they're fun they're easier to work on because you're watching them and they're always funny no matter how many times you watch it zoolander is always funny that's true um i saw quite I saw Quantum of Solace the other night. It was on TV 
again. It's on a lot. Uh, and I hadn't seen it for donkey's years and I watched it and I really liked some of the things that were happening in that as well, you know, so I'm sort of far enough away now from some of the older things to not hate them as much as I do. <laughs> you know, I, I guess that loads, there is some benefit to the passing of time then. <laughs> Absence yeah, makes the heart you know, fonder. Thinking like, I'm not, I'm not that guy anymore. So therefore it feels like I'm judging someone else, you know? So, um, but at the time I was thinking uh, every time you think, Oh God, I could have done that so well, much better. Why did I do that? Why did I do that? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, curse, it's a piece of, who curse you were of most people that I know. Yeah. 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 But everyone I know is creative has, you know, it's a tedious, you know, the, the imposter syndrome is still a thing, you know, like people think that they're not really actually very good and that they're sort of getting away with it. I don't know that many people creatively who don't feel that, you know, and, so, uh, you know, if you're watching it again, you're just thinking like, I remember how much I had to go through to get that moment done. And I still don't know if it was the right thing. You know what I mean? It's like, right. no one notices, you know, these things go past and you don't notice, but when it's you, you go, you know, it's like an actor when they're watching stuff, you know, they're looking at their performance and go, oh, God, why did I do that? And why didn't right. I do that? You know, it's like, no one notices, <laughs> But, you know, you've, everyone's, you know, you have to be viciously self-critical because otherwise I suppose you just hand in anything. Well, it's, it, I, I look at it kind of like, you know, when I'm trying to find, when I'm writing a document and I'm trying to find that perfect word, you know, Stephen King always says, use the word that comes to mind. You can go to a, th- a thesaurus and find another word. There will always be another word. But is it going to be the best one? Now, with, with your films and, and the projects that you've worked on, you know, what you felt first is probably the truest. You can go and create something else if, if the director or the writer yeah, wants you to. But is, is it going to be the same? That, 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 can be, that can be true. But I think I'm more, of, uh, I'm more of a person that I will hate it before you do. So I will look at it like it's, I will look at it like it's awful. I will find the problems with it. I will see what's wrong with it. And I will attend to all those things. So when you come as a director to look at it, you're not going to see those faults and those things Mm -hmm. that are wrong. I'll have dealt with that. And also as a composer, you have to know the reason why you're doing what you're doing. You have to know the reason why you're making the sound you're making, using the instruments, why the chords are the way they are, why the melody is the way they are, why the texture and the tone is the way that it is. Because someone's going to want to know why. And you need to be able to tell them the purpose yeah. of your decision-making yeah. because they're not going to understand necessarily. Now, yeah. I'll do that because I'll have taken it apart and I'd have gone through how to get it to where it is and like, okay, this is it. Now, if they don't like it, I don't mind as much. If they if I if I if they understand why I made those decisions and they go okay yeah I get it, but I don't agree, right? That's fine because I'm happy to do it again. If they're asking me to write more music, that's what I do, right? So I'm writing more music, not a problem. But I don't want anyone to say I don't know why I like it or I don't know why right. it works yeah. because I can I can tell you I can tell you why I think it is. Right. And, you know, it's a lot, there's a lot of sort of psychology involved in it. So um, anyway. Yeah. Cause it's feeling, you're feeling me voice. Out. I don't, I don't, I don't, 
I don't talk this much usually, so <laughs> no, it's, it's unusual to speak very amount of time. And I and I hope you're good on time because I still have fan questions. Are, are we okay? Okay, we we better get into it because yeah, it's twenty past. Well, yeah, okay. okay. Let's let me, have a few. Let me move on to that. I do apologize that I've I've gotten carried away. Um, Ter- Teresa MC, have you ever listened to another famous theme like Star Wars or others and thought I could have written something better? No, well, it's Star Wars. God, what sort of egotist would you have to be to think you could have done better than that? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, no, and I mean, never, because, you know, these the, the music belongs to the film that they were written for, you know, and, and I would never, because that feels like work. You know, if ever I watch a movie and I see a theme or I hear a theme, I can not like it, but there's no way I would ever think I could have done better because... I don't know if I ever would, you know, I mean, it's like, you, maybe you'd like to think you could, uh, but certainly, you know, if you're talking about, you know, moments of greatness, then never, mm. I'd never think that, you know, some things that just disappear or go by the wayside, you know, they usually like that because possibly the films that they're attached to are a bit like that as well. You know, they just don't demand the same level possibly. Got it. But no, I would never, I would, I would certainly never think that of a giant <laughs> Hitch wants to know uh, the the Egyptian variations, the military motifs, the love themes, the patriotic sounds, and the sci-fi elements make Stargate a rich score. But was it a challenge to combine and intersect them? Um, the whole every time you score a movie, it's a it's a challenge of so of so many different things. I mean, Stargate was a movie that had many levels and textures and colours and tones. So as long as I kept the DNA of it the same, Mm. then it would support all these different approaches. You know, I mean, the core thematic material can be played on anything and it will work, you know, and, and that's true of any theme that is working as a piece of music, you can arrange it in lots of different ways. Mm. Uh, You're not surprised when you see a big military thing happening on the screen to hear the music reflect that militaristic aspect. You're not surprised when you see people dressed in Egyptian uh, clothing, speaking in a foreign language to hear music, which evokes that kind of thing. So if the picture's there supporting it, that's the only reason the music's there doing what it's doing. It would be weird if I decided to do all that stuff and we weren't seeing it or we weren't there. But even then, some, you know, sometimes there's a case for doing that, you know, where you actually do ignore the actual on-the-nose details of what's on the screen and you go mm-hmm. for something different. But with Stargate, it was, uh, it was pretty much on the screen was what I went with. There wasn't that much else going on other than what you're seeing. Do you know what I mean? That's fair, yeah. I don't think I don't think there are any hidden messages. <laughs> That's certainly true. It, like you said, it doesn't try to be anything that it's not. Uh, William yeah, Aaron, yeah, exactly. What do you feel about the current lack of TV theme songs and symphonic overtures? Can we have space operas without music? Yeah, a lot of these shows now they've shortened their openings to like ten seconds. Oh, I. I mean, it's really. I find it really distressing. Yeah. Um, if these people ever went to like a film music or a TV music concert, 
of the music that they are putting on their shows, they'd be in and out in five minutes. This is true. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I mean, I, I mean, you know, composers want to do something which is identifiable. And I think a lot of them do are brilliant things, but what it is, it's an audio ident. You know what I mean? It's not a theme tune and it's not a title sequence. It's an audio ident. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a like an advert. And interestingly, psychologically it parks itself in the part of the brain which is to do with recognition of something else it doesn't Correct. land as music it lands as an identifier for something else which is why <laughs> makes you think of doesn't make you think of a song doesn't make you think of music it makes you think of mcdonald's right you know there's a there's a psychological reason for that happening uh and i know that everyone's terrified of um people losing attention for watching a 30 second um opening title sequence and yet then you've got good omens which has got a 40 second opening title sequence and it's, it was amazon's biggest show yep exactly you know, i think it was their it biggest the I think their biggest original show mm -hmm. it, it, it does all that stuff and it's the sort of stuff that then people sort of come back to and want more of uh, and it's a big part of the of the storytelling toolkit that we've got. Um, and I think it's it feels like it's a, like a sort of a, a, a lack of courage and B, a lack of creative thinking to think that we don't have an opening title sequence um, because we're worried that our audience are too stupid to uh, to stick with it. I mean, for all I know, that might be true. How depressing is that? Not with this audience, let me tell you. You've got over 100 people listening <laughs> well, to you right now who are who are yeah, hanging on every word. And, you know, I mean, Stargate is a show as well which 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 celebrates the idea uh -huh. of the, of, the uh, of, of your title sequence, you know. I mean, I grew up listening to them. I'm more worried about in 20 years' time when people are going to be making shows and writing music for shows where their inspiration is... Da -da. you know it's, yeah and that's it it's like you know, it's, a, it's a it's a it's a fairly low bar in that regard but i realize that people have reasons for doing it uh i would fight against it if it, if i was involved you know i mean all the tv stuff that i've done is at least partially orchestral true and it's a big and it's a big tune you know everything yeah. Last and that's the only way i would do it last question for you sir and then i'm gonna let you go what are uh, thank you very much <laughs> thank you our redev not in a sarcastic way but thank you really thank you for having me oh this Lovely. has been tremendous david completely our redev what is the best piece of advice another musician has ever given you uh i mean you could you could lie and and we'd never know. <laughs> I, I could, well, there's, so. well, there's, all, there's all those um, sort of weird, like homilies, you know, like, you know, kind of down home kind of makes you think kind of chin strokey, feel good, you know, shit. I don't think I've ever really had anything like that. Um, the best bit is John Barry. Um, Two things. 
I never talked to him about music. We used to talk about lots of things, but I never used to talk to him about music. I asked him once about Bond songs. Mm. And I said, like, what do you, you know, when you're starting with these, you know, where do you start? He said, David, he goes, just make sure it's about cock. Now, that's not the best piece of advice I ever got. It's it's notable and it's, you know, memorable. Uh, and <laughs> when you look at those songs again, you realise that it's true. Uh, but the other piece of advice that, you know, again, is a huge truism, especially for, for John. Uh, he said, play the theme, play the theme, play the theme. And when you look at John Barry movies, every chance you get, the theme is there, which is why when you go to a music evening of John Barry theme tunes, you know every single one. Because for two hours, you've had the most glorious thematic material played at you. Mm constantly and no one minds and no one's complained and no one's going like can it be different it's like i want to hear that again and again and again and he does he kind of keeps giving it to you and all of a sudden you are full of this music and you're full of the movie the emotional core of the movie uh, play the theme, play the theme, play the theme. That's my favorite bit of advice. Wow. David, this has been fantastic. And I'd love to, I'd love to plant a, a seed in your head. We are moving into, we're, we're six months Heady old on. now and we're, uh, we're, we're wanting to, I'm going to start doing commentaries, um, with, of, of the movies and of, and of the shows. And I would love to have you back just to sit and listen through the film to all of your pieces. Um, this would be something that would be pre-recorded, and I'd, I'd love to have you back for that, to have you discuss and articulate everything as the show moves. That would be slightly possibly torturous, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> Just think about it, sir. And again, thank you. I will uh, think about it. Thank you for uh, for this wonderful opportunity. I'm going to go ahead and, oh, uh, and wrap up the welcome. show. and. You you uh, you do your thing. If um, if 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 anyone wants questions that we didn't get to tonight, if you want to stick them on Twitter and point them in my direction, I'll I'll, I'll see if I can get to them it's, over the next few days. If they have, they might not have. You might have had the three, and that was it. Everyone's going like, I don't know about this guy. Anything. I I felt a little bad not not checking in with you because I did pass a few up. But you are at David G Arnold, correct? Yep, David G Arnold. That's me. Thank you, sir. And thank you on, to on, on Twitter. Th thank you so much for your time. And I, I look forward to speaking with you again. Well, thank you very much. I haven't talked about Stargate, I think, since I've done it, if I'm being perfectly honest. And so to be able to go back and reconsider all those things, there are right. so many stories, some of which I really can't say in public. <laughs> There's so many so many amazing things uh it was a real baptism of fire and it has a very huge part of my heart and i think my enthusiasm for it is in the music and it's still there i haven't changed my mind about it i love it correct and we love you for it thank Alrighty. you david for your time thank you very you much be well all righty bye-bye thank sir. you very much see you see you soon hopefully absolutely david arnold Composer, 
for Stargate, the movie. I have always been a sucker for music. There are plenty of people who watch, and they're like, music? I didn't hear any music. I'm like, well, okay then. You have no soul. All right. Our winner, chosen by the moderators for the deluxe soundtrack, is Hitch, who asked the question about combining the the disparate elements of music into one cohesive soundtrack. The expanded edition movie soundtrack is yours, Hitch. Please email me at dialthegateshow at uh, gmail.com. And we will get that over to you. Anyone out there listening, if you are not Hitch, do not email about the soundtrack. Because I know who you are. I have ways of finding out on YouTube. So it all tracks back. This was terrific. And uh, we've got a few questions submitted for me. So I wanted to go over them real quick. Michael B., in the first episode where they meet Daniel and Captain Carter discovers the dialing device, she makes a MacGyver reference. But I've seen a different version where she doesn't make that reference. I am curious which version was first and who thought of making the MacGyver reference in the first place. Uh, so the the reference appears in the original cut for Children of the Gods, going back to Showtime. The final cut has had it extracted. So I'm assuming that it was Jonathan Glasner's idea. I may be completely wrong. Um, one way or another, Brad thought that it was uh, uh, distracting or some other thing 14, 15 years later. So he had it uh, removed. So that's, there's, there's two different versions of that out there. Teresa, do you have enemy ship models in your collection? Gould, Mothership, Wraith, Ori. There's there's the Hatok right there. Uh, we got Atlantis. We got Destiny. Um, yeah. I'm uh, looking to acquire other pieces. I'm wanting a, uh, a, a full-scale replicator. I've seen, uh, I've seen them on... Etsy and a couple of other places. Some of them are like half scale. I really want the um, the replicator that's seen in, Men- in Nemesis in the box. There's two different kinds. Yeah, the long spider leg ones that were really introduced in in uh, in Nemesis, and then by around season five in Enemies, they had the smaller ones as well. And that's the one that you see in Menace in the box. And I'm trying to, I would I would love to put that replicator back there because the long spider leg ones they wouldn't fit on the shelf. Uh, I want to add a replicator. I want to add, um, I can't think of it right now. Oh, an O'Neill class uh, Asgard ship as well. I want to get an Asgard ship back there, but I haven't come across them yet. And uh, hopefully I'll be getting a ZPM back there at some point, uh, courtesy of a certain props website, but we'll we'll see what's happening for that. Are you planning to purchase any SGA custom Funkos if you can find them? If I can find them, I, I would not mind owning a, a set of the core team at the very least. I've seen some really, really cool ones out there. These these custom fan pieces are just extraordinary. I know that Sue Ann Braun uh, has one of Hathor, and it is just so cool. I know that I think that that was um, uh, 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 Daniel Jackson, not not the not the character, but the. Uh, 
the uh, the artist. He's he's on the web as as well, making a lot of these things. It's just they're just extremely cool. Zombie dude twenty five to the mods. I've been watching to the mods. I've been watching these amazing interviews for a while. You need to tell David to check out the game Pulsar. He will love it. Much thanks. I will do that. I'm a big Elite Dangerous game player. If there's anyone out there who flies, um, I fly on Thursday nights. If you want to join a wing, we can do that too. That's that's a terrific game, but I will check out Pulsar as well. That's all that we've got for this episode. Dial the Gate is brought to you each and every week for free, and we do appreciate you watching. But if you want to support the show further, buy yourself some of our themed swag. We're now offering t-shirts, tank tops, sweatshirts, and hoodies for all ages in a variety of sizes and colors at Redbubble. Checkout is fast and easy, and you can even use your Amazon or PayPal account. Just visit dialthegate.redbubble.com, and thank you for your support. If you've enjoyed this episode, do me a favor and click the like button. It makes a difference with the algorithm. Share this with a Stargate friend, and if you want to see more content like this, subscribe. If you hit the bell icon, you'll get notified of new videos as soon as they drop. Makeup Maestro, Todd Masters, is going to be joining us at the top of the hour in 26 minutes. We're going to have a conversation about prosthetics and about the alien creatures that have been designed for Stargate. He's going to be a fascinating discussion. My name is David Reed for Dial the Gate. I really appreciate you tuning in. We'll see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acri. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo design by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com.